Hi, everyone. It's David E.B. from The Dash. Uh, before today's episode with Mo Amir, uh, just a quick reminder for everybody interested in information about uh, the floods and emergency response, go to emergencyinfobc.gov.bc.ca. There's information there about how you can donate uh, to support people affected by the floods. And if you are affected by the floods, whether uh, you've been evacuated or uh, you need to access uh, services or supports, uh, there's information for you there as well. Uh, our thoughts uh, at the Dash and certainly personally go out to everybody uh, affected by the floods and uh, very grateful for all the volunteers and frontline workers uh, delivering services in this time. Welcome to the Dash. I'm David Eby. With me, as always, co-host Katrina Chen and a very exciting podcast this morning. Uh, famous TV star uh, Mo Amir is here with us. You'll know him from This is Van Color. Now, this is Van Culler on Czech News, where he opened with the premiere. He's on radio on CBC on the Coast with Soapbox Social. He's in print on Vancouver is Awesome. And if you want to know what he's thinking, he's at, at Van Culler on Twitter. Ladies and gentlemen, Mo Amir, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, David E.B. One thing you forgot in that resume is that last time I was on the show, I promised I'd take you to number one on the iTunes charts, and I did just that. So next the time, you got to mention power. that. <laughs> but thank you. Very kind words. I appreciate it. This is incredible and an incredible journey for you, Mole. How has it been feeling from after your first show? Oh, uh, the first show I thought went really well. Uh, it's a beautiful set design. Czech has clearly invested a lot of effort and dedication to making the show a success. It is an interesting transformation to go from strictly podcast to television show. There are new constraints, but, uh, you know, we're learning on the spot and I thought it went really well. I was very humbled that the premier would come on and be so generous, both just with his time, but then also, you know, opening up a, a side of him that uh, we normally don't see. And uh, I think that was very special for, for myself, certainly, but I think for a lot of viewers as well. So the feedback's been great and it's, being a whirlwind. <laughs> That's amazing. You actually got the premiere choked up uh, in, in the show, and that was quite a, a good moment to, to do. Uh, we got him choked up sometimes too, but that's when we piss him off, maybe. <laughs> you, you choked him up in a good way. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think that's important for the culture. I think uh, from our leadership, from uh, people in the culture, it's important to show that we are all human and we have normal emotions. And it is important to normalize that breadth and depth of emotions that we have. And, and certainly, I'm sure for both of you, you must feel like you're always on, especially if there's a camera or a microphone. But, you know, putting away those layers and, and just being yourself, I, I think, uh, says volumes. And it, again, it signals to other people that it is okay to open up to to other people about how you're feeling. So it was it was a special moment and uh, I was very honored and, and humbled that that he would share that with me. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really nice the relationship you and he have built. And, you know, I also recognize, Mo, that this is one of your real strengths as an interviewer and surely why you're transitioning to, to TV is you have this unique ability to get people to say things on your show <laughs> and uh, and interact with you in a, in a really deeply personal and vulnerable way. Is this something you've always had I, uh, or is this something that you kind of develop over time, 10,000 hours style or uh, how, how, how did this work for you? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I know uh, 
the first time you were on the show, uh, I caught you a little speechless, uh, which is well, rare I, I for cried, you. I cried five times. That's right. <laughs> I would love to listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it actually no. did make me speechless. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you know, you're, you're supposed to be this, this, uh, you know, uh, lawyer and you're, you're very skilled. And that was a big win for me, David. So, uh, but <laughs> But you no, know, you know, I, I think there's two sides to it. I think from the interview and the podcast side, I do go into interviews with a certain strategy and, and a certain well thought out plan of what I want to talk about. I'm certainly flexible in letting an interview go where it goes. But, you know, I'm, I've always maintained I'm not a journalist, uh, but I do like talking to people. And I think some of that does create really good content. And you have to kind of, as an interviewer, open up. You have to be a little self-deprecating. Um, you just have to be a real person. And if you ask questions in good faith, and if you you keep it light in some regard as well, I, I find that a lot of people are willing to open up to you. And, and it is about creating a bit of a safe environment. And it's interesting because sometimes my opinionist work clashes with the interviewing style, where the opinionist work is very obnoxious and it's very hardlined and and, you know, it's a little populist and it's, it's, it's trying to rouse uh, uh, excitement and fervor out of people. But my interview style is a little more subdued, even though I, I can be loud, but it is trying to create an intimate environment where someone feels open and, um, and feels like they can let their hair down and kind of, uh, uh, you know, say what they're really feeling. So I don't know, I guess I've always had it to a certain degree, but certainly more conscious about it once I started podcasting. So actually, I want to get a little personal about how you got into <laughs> podcast as well. Uh, your sure. journey, uh, how, how did it happen to you? And I know, Mo, um, you care a lot about a lot of social justice issues and anti-racism. And I know we connected a few times when on Twitter, especially when um, social justice and anti-racism and equity issue came up, uh, you seem to be quite engaged in those topics. And just wondering, as a person of color in this big journalism world, mainstream media, do you see a difference in how um, journalists uh, who are indigenous, black and people of color, that you do you have a different experience from other journalists? Um, and how was your journey being like? I so to be completely honest, and uh, I wish I could give you a better answer. I, I can't speak for journalists in terms of beat reporters and investigative reporters and the challenges they face. Uh, I just haven't faced myself, so it wouldn't be wholly appropriate or even probably factual if I was to comment on that. One one thing I've always been critical of, however, is the lack of diversity in opinion pages, particularly in, in major newspapers or even on the radio sometimes. And it's it's a hard it's a hard thing for me to bring up because now I'm an opinionist on CBC and Vancouver is awesome. And I can express my opinions on my own show on check. So it, it I don't know how, how true that rings anymore. But the reality is it's like when you look at the Globe and Mail or the National Post, they have tons of op-ed columnists and they're predominantly white. And I think because of that, uh, there is a, a certain gap in a lot of opinions media that we have in, in this country. And I don't know it's because of the size of our country or a different mediascape. I can't really comment on that. But what I'll say is in the United States, you know, they have a huge spectrum of political commentators from 
people who are doing incredibly well, getting hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of views on YouTube to things that you even see on network television. Um, there's so much more that they have there than we have here. So I take my cues from a lot of what I see in American media, which I know some people will be like, oh, we don't like American media. But what I'm trying to create is a certain accessibility for people to delve into these issues. So the idea is you might not know anything about a topic. And usually when I come into an interview, I know very little. I do some background and try to ask appropriate questions. But I'm really trying to make it accessible for someone who is not in the know to maybe learn a little bit or have that become an entry point for someone. And that's always kind of been the ethos. And, you know, I had that experience with you, Katrina, where I had a guest on where uh, we talked about childcare and it, it, it blew my mind. And then I was like, well, I need to get the, the minister of childcare on the podcast. And, and I delved into it. And I think for a lot of people who listened to those two episodes, um, it opened up their minds as well. So that's how I kind of uh, look at things. And then, and then, you know, from, from a racialized angle, when you look at pa- political panels, and again, I'm talking about opinion work again, but political panels, opinionists, you know, we do need more voices just to give different ideas. Because a lot of what we're seeing, and I know I'm slamming the, the newspapers now, but it's like a lot that we see in the, the newspaper op-eds is like the same old, same old. <laughs> well, you're paving a new journey and you are really making it more inclusive and diverse for all. So thank you so much for that work. Yeah, well, <laughs> you're making it sound more than it is, but I appreciate that. Mo, I, I, you know, one of the things that I appreciate about the work that you do is uh, is not only do you take a, a different angle on things, I think you're genuinely curious when you when you do your mm-hmm. shows, when you uh, meet with people about, you know, where are they coming from? What are their beliefs? You know, let's take the liberal leadership coverage that you've done. I'll be honest. I saw your tweets about Ellis Ross winning the debate. <laughs> and I was like, you well, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> uh, but, but then I watched the, uh, you know, I watched the opening statements. I watched a little bit of the debate and and I'm inclined to think you're right. I, you know, he did come across as very strong. Uh, like he, he knows where he comes from, what he stands for. And that's a that's a powerful thing in politics to have that kind of confidence. You, you've also um, invited Aaron Gunn to discuss what he thinks about politics and what he wants to do. Uh, and that was a hot topic on the debate uh, last night. Can you uh, give us a sense? Because essentially Aaron Gunn was uh, not allowed to participate in the leadership race of the B.C. Liberals. And yet you had him on your show. And so why would that be that that you would invite someone like Aaron Gunn on, someone that the BC Liberals are like, we won't even give this man a platform? What what is that about? What is that? How does that connect with your curiosity and your interest in these issues? Yeah, great, great question. So when it comes to Aaron Gunn, I, I took a lot of flack for having him on the show. And even today, like news will come out about Aaron Gunn or some tweet will go viral about him and people will tag me. Oh, I can't believe you had this guy in the show. What a, you know, you're so terrible, Mo. You're a Nazi, all this stuff. I, I wrote in an opinion piece that Aaron Gunn had major blinders to systemic racism and systemic discrimination. I was very clear about that. I was also very clear that we are polar opposites on policy. The impetus for him being on the show was I started seeing him being labeled as an alt-right figure from BC Liberal members. And I just found that strange because I think alt-right means something. It it does mean, you know, white supremacist. It it comes with certain characteristics, people who believe in, you know, the great replacement theory, all that kind of stuff. And 
from what I could tell from Aaron Gunn, I felt like he was hard right, but I couldn't really make the case that he was far right. And so, and I still believe that today. Um, I, I have yet to be shown any particular evidence that he's, you know, far right. Certainly you can make the argument that his audience flirts or uh, encompasses some of those elements, but I, I don't think he is personally. And I've developed a relationship with him. We, we still chat here and there. Um, and so I thought that would be an interesting chat to see what he actually believes in. And, and, and yeah, you know, I guess if I'm going to take my lumps for having him on, sure. But I did press him on quite a few issues, including drug decriminalization and safe supply. I asked him all the questions in terms of, you know, categorizing someone as, as alt-right, which he vehemently denied. And again, I've yet to see evidence to the contrary. Uh, you know, I, I think I was critical with him, um, but nevertheless, I gave him a fair shot. And just just like I give everyone a fair shot on the show. You know, I might blast someone on in, in, a, in an opinions column on the radio or in print. And I've certainly done that with the premier in the past as well. But I think people recognize, I should say, smart people recognize that if they come on the show, they are going to be treated very fairly. It is a, a place of open dialogue and discussion. And I, I don't want to get in a shouting match with anyone. I don't think, first of all, I don't think that's good content. But second of all, I don't know how productive that is. So we can debate here and there a little bit, but um, yeah, I, I, I think it's important to hear all sides with some limitations. Certainly there are limitations. I wouldn't bring on a, a you know, an actual white supremacist and be like, tell me about your feelings. <laughs> it, speaking of shouting matches, Mo, uh, what did you think of last night's debate? You know, the BC liberals almost got me. They almost got me because I thought that this was not a coronation ceremony for Kevin Falcon. Last night, or whenever this airs, the second leadership debate made it very evident that it is. He is the presumed frontrunner. He, to his own you know, admission, is drawing the biggest crowds. He's clearly got a lot of money behind him. And only Ellis Ross went after him. And it was just the one time. And, you know, we we saw this weird configuration. And I don't know if it was purpose purposeful or inadvertent, but we saw this weird configuration of Gavin Dew particularly Val Litwin and Kevin Falcon really going after Ellis Ross. I'm not saying there's anything there, but I'm saying if you, if you look at the debate, there seem to be these three guys really piling on Ellis on climate change and not landing. I thought Ellis actually, this is the why I thought he won the debate because there was so much focus on him. A lot of the criticism seemed to be incoherent. It was unclear what they were even referring to. And Ellis was able to deflect in a somewhat populist way where he's saying, listen, we can't talk about climate change if it's suddenly going to increase the cost of living for people in rural and northern communities. And I just think that that's a little rough around the edges, but that that realness and authenticity is a great charisma that uh, Ellis possesses. You can disagree with him, but I think in the optics of, of that debate and how everyone handled themselves and presented their cases, there was a lot of focus on Ellis, and I think he did really well. And there was no focus on Kevin Falcon. I mean, Michael Lee, the invisible man, Michael Lee, I thought he wasn't a good debater because he was up against you, Mr. Eby. But I'm starting to believe that he's just not a competent debater at all. I mean, Kevin Falcon sucked his soul by, by bringing up the fact that they're docking his pay because he's so absent in the BC legislature. 
And he had nothing in response. And you put that into the context of senior members of Falcon's team, at least one senior member, berating Michael Lee's campaign manager and other senior members of Falcon's team, basically doing nothing about it. Lee had that in the canon and he didn't use it. And, and in a discussion about leadership and the culture you want to create in an organization, that could have been a home run. And Michael Lee did nothing. So, uh, you know, I'm starting to just feel like maybe maybe some promises are being made and, and the road is being paved for, for Kevin Falcon to be the, the next leader of the BC Liberals. That is so interesting. I'm now feeling so glad that we're in this side of the house. <laughs> we get along really well. <laughs> Especially with uh, Davey Eby, who uh, always seems to be so serious, but he's actually quite a lot of fun. <laughs> Thanks, Katrina. Yeah, yeah, Glad, we cleared that up. Glad we cleared that up. I remember the first time you told a joke, I was like, oh my gosh, Davey Eby tells jokes. <laughs> this is cool. <laughs> I've, always, I've always found you to be very zen and cool and calm and collected, Mr. Eby. I've always... It's all the yoga, Mo. It's I think all the that's yoga. it. Yeah. Absolutely right. <laughs> So, okay, Mo, uh, one of the things we do uh, each week, and and we don't want to put you on the spot, is we oh, talk about uh, uh, story of the week, what's in the news uh, of interest, what's getting covered that uh, maybe is missing something, what's not getting covered that should have been. I'll uh, kick it off, uh, obviously, the floods and the total uh, destruction among so many of our uh, highways, uh, roads, and uh, railways due to climate impacts on our weather uh, is uh, is not just the story of the week, but really it is the story of uh, of our time, and uh, and just so profoundly moved by the efforts of volunteers and uh, people who showed up to save the pump station, and the resilience of farmers and the resilience of people in the valley impacted, um, and uh, all of the public service workers, the emergency management BC, and. Uh, police, fire, and now military are showing up to do the work. Uh, just profoundly grateful for all the efforts of everybody and the uh, the leadership of the premier and, uh, and Minister Farmworth on this. Uh, it's hard to say anything other than this is uh, clearly a major and, and ongoing story that will last for many, many years and, uh, and perhaps our lifetime as we battle climate change. So that's uh, front of mind for me. Obviously, it's front of mind for uh, everybody in the province, and I'm sure for both of you. But, uh, but it could not be the story of the week for me. Totally. And, and my story of the week, um, this week, actually starting on November 25th, um, is the 16 days of activism against gender-based violence. Um, as many of you know, gender-based violence is the most widespread, persistent, and really devastating human rights violation in our world today. It's, it is the shadow pandemic, which unfortunately remains largely unreported because of the silence and stigma and shame around it. So I think it's so important that we raise the awareness of this. Um, it's going to go from November 25th to December 10th, uh, ending on the Human Rights Day. But really, every day, uh, this is an important issue I think we need to continue to raise awareness and talk about. So what is your story of the week, Mo? Oh, I am so unprepared for this. I mean, it has to be the floods. Obviously, David Eby just uh, talked about that. And what a year. I mean, for natural disasters, it's it's really been quite tragic. Certainly when you when we think about the heat dome and the forest fires and the human cost that took, but the atmospheric river, uh, obviously there was a human cost to it, but I think the widespread infrastructural cost that it that it is uh, incurring for the province is crazy. It's it's incredible. And it is, I'm lucky being in North Van that I'm isolated from it but Abbotsford is not that far away and you see those images and it's it's very sad and 
I guess I would say the story of the week, if, if, since I don't want to be redundant, is uh, the the BC government putting good faith in drivers that they're only going to fill 30 liters at the pump. Uh, I thought that maybe the machines would be reconfigured or something so that you would, you know, it would stop at 30. But I think it's just a good faith system at this point. I am acting in good faith. I, I know others are, but certainly we've seen on social media, there are people hoarding fuel in jerry cans and whatever other containers um, that created a, a temporary panic. You know, that that's quite a shock to the system of how delicate our infrastructure is in the face of climate change events. And I think you guys have a tough job ahead. I, I, I actually do believe you did a, you did a good job in the emergency response. I said as much on the CBC, I would love after this is the dust is kind of settled for there to be a review about emergency preparedness, because I think this is one issue where we do need a climate lens. Absolutely. And it's new, right? Like the, the, we were thinking about earthquakes and tsunamis, and now we have to think about all these other issues and upgrading the infrastructure, where are the vulnerable spots? And that is a huge challenge because you can predict certain risks of climate change events, but to pinpoint exactly where a mudslide is going to happen or where a flood is going to happen is actually quite difficult. And this is a huge challenge for the province, for municipalities, for the country, certainly globally. And, um, you know, I, I do hope that moving forward, we start putting in the frameworks where we can show leadership uh, in terms of how to do this. And it's a big challenge ahead of, for for you guys. So it's, it's interesting, Mo, uh, when you when you talk about the sort of good faith uh, rationing system for gasoline, um, there was uh, I think it was Lisa Christensen on CBC said, you know, how do you get a bunch of Canadians out of the pool You say everyone, please get out of the pool. You know, I, I think one of the nice uh, things about our uh, culture, our shared culture, is um, that people want to do their part, you know, when they know that someone's in distress, when they know that there's a problem. Uh, and also, we don't trust other people as much as we should, really, um, in terms of uh, being good faith actors in the world. Uh, I'll give you one example, the Civil Resolution Tribunal. It's a bit arcane of an example, but this is an online tribunal in the province that that deals with uh, small claims, small, small claims disputes under $5,000 and strata disputes and that kind of thing. They have a, a test for waiving their filing fee. It's an, it's an income test, but it's self-reporting. And in uh, the residential tenancy branch and in courts, you got to prove that you don't have money to, to meet the filing fees. Their uh, level of granting fee waivers is about the same as any of the other systems, but they don't have to spend a lot of time administering and reviewing people's documents of their paychecks and so on. And so there are these moments where, you know, we need to trust each other. Uh, and people will, some people will act badly, you know, they will. Uh, and even if you put really strict rules in, they'll try to get around those rules. Uh, and so, you know, it's a, it's an interesting, um, thing to see how many people have voluntarily, um, and appropriately, in my opinion, responded to this, not by filling up, uh, big barrels of gasoline at the gas station, but by, you know, uh, by following, uh, the rationing, recognizing that if they go beyond that, it's, it's gas for ambulances, fire trucks, uh, uh, for other uh, essential service workers and so on uh, that they're taking away. So I, I really appreciate that. I think I think you're right. I think uh, the majority of people are certainly acting in good faith. There always will be that minority that don't. We've seen it during COVID. Um, and again, it's something that happened had to happen really quickly. And I'm assuming the gas stations aren't just properly set up to limit, you know, 
30, 30 liters per, per transaction. So uh, I do hope British Columbians are doing their part. And uh, if you're of means and you're able, please do consider donating to uh, Canadian Red Cross. They have a BC uh, relief fund set up for people affected by the weather events. And uh, there's also like the Abbotsford Relief Fund. There's lots of places where, where you can, you know, contribute and, and help out your fellow British Columbians. So that's just my call out for the for the day. One hundred percent. Mo, can I give you a chance to do one other call out? Uh, how do people watch your new show? Uh, so this is Van Color on Czech, Czech News, at the Czech Plus app. But if you do want to watch it uh, on television, it's seven o'clock on Sunday nights on Czech. The podcast feed is continuing. So if you go to the podcast feed, you can still get the interview with Premier John Horgan. You can get the full interview with uh, Ellis Ross. And, and I see that the NDP has clearly listened to it because they, they're starting to take excerpts and attack him. So uh, have, have, a, have a listen there. This is Van Keller, wherever you get your podcasts and on check Sunday nights at 7. Yeah, it is uh, amazing to have you here joining us today, Mo. And please follow Mo Amir at Van Keller uh, on Twitter. I am very addicted to Twitter. And I have to say, I always learn a lot from your feeds and tweets. And I enjoy listening to your podcast. So thank you so much. I always learn so much from you, Mo. And for all the listeners, if you like listening to The Dash, never miss an episode by subscribing wherever you get your podcast. The Dash is hosted by Debbie Eby and me, Katrina Chen. It's produced and edited by Duncan Watts-Grant. 